very pleased to be able to introduce uh, Sue Mendes, who is Professor of uh, Political Philosophy that right? at the University of York, and she is an expert on uh, political toleration and um, commenting on her paper, which is called Religious Toleration and Political Liberalism, <laughs> is uh, Nick Southwood, who is currently at Jesus College Oxford, but he's also got an appointment at the ANU. So, uh, take it away, Sue. Okay, thank oh, Look, I'll stand up. I'm barely any taller standing up than I am. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make a whole lot of difference, but it makes a small amount. And uh, although some people have heard this joke before, you know, if it's a good joke, it's worth retelling. Uh, by the time you get to this end of, of the day, you feel that, that conferences are like nuclear war. There are no winners, there are only survivors. So <laughs> As survivors, I'm conscious that pretty soon we'll be wasting good drinking time. <laughs> so, no, more seriously, um, it, it's been a long day, and it's the end of a long day. So what I'm trying to do is to be quite succinct, and I will try to be as clear as I can. And I will try to draw links between you know, what's, what's here and what's been said um, uh, excuse me, earlier in, in the day. Um, there is one part, the paper I think is on the whole pretty accessible. There's one part that, that is you know, tremendously sort of John Rawls anorak. I mean, I, I am a John Rawls anorak. Um, I do go train spotting. Um, with a thermos flask and look through the sacred texts. I disguise it quite well on the whole, but there are sort of two pages here where I just can't resist the temptation to, to drive deeply into, really deeply into uh, Raw's interpretation. I'll warn you when those two pages are coming, so you can just you know, fall asleep or you do, do whatever you want to do. And then I'll tell you when they've gone, and you can wake up. And that, when they've gone, that's quite close to the end of the paper. Okay. So, um, in a book called Terror and the Mind of God, which I've mentioned elsewhere in things I've, I've written, Mark Jorgensmeyer says, perhaps the first question that came to mind when televisions around the world displayed the extraordinary aerial assaults on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on September 11, 2001, was why would anyone do such a thing? When it became clear that the perpetrator's motivations were couched in religious terms, the shock turned to anger. How could religion be related to such vicious acts? And that question is the question that's kind of haunted me, and it's the question that, that underpins this paper. I mean, it's the itch that I'm trying to scratch in, in this paper. How can religion be related to violent acts? And more precisely, the lecture's motivated, the talk's motivated by puzzlement that so few of the people within political philosophy who've written on this topic in recent years, that is the years since 9-11, since 7-7, take seriously, as it seems to me, the possibility that when terrorists say they're acting for religious reasons, that's what they mean. Um, there's, within political philosophy, political theory, uh, other commentary, there is a deep resistance to or neglect of that possibility. And I think that that fact, that resistance and neglect, is significant both for our understanding of recent terrorist attacks on Western liberal societies and for our understanding of the values of liberalism itself. So I'll try to make the position slightly more vivid with, with two quotations or two examples. In a book called The Lesser Evil, Michael Ignatieff discusses religiously motivated terrorism 
under the heading The Temptations of Nihilism. And he suggests that where terrorists attempt to justify their actions by reference to religion, they are quote-unquote hijacking scriptural tradition. He writes, the devil can always quote scripture to his use, and there is never a shortage in any faith of texts justifying the use of force. Equally, all religions contain sacred texts urging believers to treat human beings decently. A nihilist use of religious doctrine is one that perverts the doctrine into a justification for inhuman deeds and ignores any part of the doctrine which is resistant to its violent purpose. So for Ignatiev, explanations of terrorism that appeal to religion are cases of, of high, so it's hard to speak quotation marks, but here they are, of hijacking or perverting or distorting religion. He uses all those words. And he doesn't consider the possibility that it's not a perversion of religion, but religion that dictates those violent acts. And my second example comes from Bob Goodin's discussion of terrorism in his 2006 book, What's Wrong with Terrorism? Um, concurring with <coughs> the US Army definition of terrorism, Goodin says that while terrorism may be motivated by political, religious, or ideological objectives, in a sense, terrorist goals are always political, as extremists driven by religious or ideological beliefs seek political power to compel society to conform to their views. And he concludes, I'm going to be arguing that terrorism is best understood not as a psychopathology or as an ideology, but as a distinctive political tactic, the essence of which lies in its attempt to frighten people for political advantage. So both Ignatius and Goodin deny that there is, a, as it were, an authentic connection between religion and terrorism. For Ignatius, that's because those who claim religious authority for what they do are distorting or perverting religion. For um, Goodin, it's because what, what presents as a, as a religious motivation is in fact an attempt to secure a political goal. But neither takes seriously the possibility that there is, as I put it, an authentic relationship between religion proper, unperverted religion, and violence. And it's that possibility that I want to consider here. And just to anticipate, I'll give you the structure, and then you can, you know, when, if, when you wake up at various points, you'll know where I am in the middle of the argument. So here's the structure. First, I want to make some very general points. I mean, of the kind that, that uh, Ben uh, rather um, rejected this morning about the historical circumstances that gave birth to liberalism. Then I want to say something about how that historical understanding differs from the understanding that's implicit in modern political philosophy and modern politics, rules in politics and political theory in particular. And finally, I want to suggest that despite its overt insistence on the permanence of pluralism, conflict, disagreement, and so on. Modern politics <coughs> and modern political philosophy don't take seriously the depth of disagreement that divides people in modern societies, and in particular, don't take seriously the distinctive character of religious belief. So it's first of all a historical story, then how that historical story has been appropriated by modern commentators in political philosophy and in politics. And then, what's wrong with that? Why that, it seems to me, why the appropriation is defective and, 
and dangerous. And I'll end with an example, which I hope will you know, cast light on what the point of all of this is. For people who aren't themselves rules and acts, and let's face it, not everybody is. So this historical story. Um, I began with Jürgen Meyer's bewilderment that religion could somehow <coughs> be related to, to violent acts. acts. Um, he asks, you know, how can religion be associated with, with this sort of violence? But, but the incredulity is itself rather puzzling. Um, because, as a number of people have said in different ways, today and yesterday, the history of religion is in some part a history of violence. And Quentin Skinner, History of Ideas, um, has noted, and I quote, it is all too clear that Christianity has often proved an intolerant religion and that some at least of the wars and persecutions with which it's been associated have followed from its character as a creed. So, why the bewilderment of the history of Christianity is in some part the history of violence, the history of murder, the history of bloodshed. Why is there then this bewilderment and why is there a resistance amongst Barber, Goodin, Ignatieff, and many people, papers been mentioned more than once. Why, is, why do these people persist in interpreting religiously motivated violence as fundamentally political or strategic, but not as religious? <coughs> There's an answer, one answer, that I want to consider, and it draws upon, again, you know, apologies to, to Ben, it draws, draws upon a conjectural history of liberalism that's very largely celebratory. So here's, here's John Rawls in 1993, book Political Liberalism, and here's the conjectural history, here's the story that Rawls tells to political theorists, political philosophers. He says this, when moral philosophy began, say with Socrates, Ancient religion was a civic religion of social practice, of civic festivals, and public celebrations. Moreover, this civic religious culture was not based on a sacred work like the Bible or the Quran. As long as one participated in the expected way and recognised the proprieties, the details of what one believed were not of great importance. It was a matter of doing the done thing and being a trustworthy member of society always ready to carry out one's civic duties as a good citizen, to serve on juries or to row in the fleet in war when called upon to do so. It was not a religion of salvation in the Christian sense, and there was no class of priests who dispensed the necessary means of grace. Indeed, immortality and eternal salvation did not have a central place in classical culture. But for all, all this changes in the 16th and 17th centuries, when, with the rise of Protestantism, belief came to be of paramount importance. Because then, one's prospects, your prospects, of eternal salvation were thought to depend crucially on having the right beliefs. You've got to believe the right thing. And if you don't believe the right things, you're damned and you're damned forever. And forever is a long time, not just in politics. So additionally, and unsurprisingly, at this time, this is all Rawls' conjectural history, opinions differed as to which beliefs were the right ones. So now it really matters that you've got the right belief. But there are very many different views about which belief is the right one. And so, says Rawls, the scene is set for intolerance and religious persecution on a massive scale. For what could be more important than life everlasting? 
And if life everlasting depends on having the right religious beliefs, then those beliefs must be secured by whatever means is necessary. In short, this salvationist understanding of religion, when coupled with convicting, uh, conflicting answer, opinions about which beliefs are necessary for salvation, <coughs> delivered religious violence and religious persecution on a massive scale <coughs> and over many years. However, again on Rawls account, those circumstances, those historical circumstances, the rise of Protestantism, the rise of Salvationism, provided not only the grounds for religious violence, but also the possibility of liberal toleration. While acknowledging that there was nothing new in the Christian desire to conquer other people or save their souls, Rawls nonetheless insists that this clash, this post-Reformation clash, was new in that, I quote, it introduced into people's conception of their good a transcendent element not admitting of compromise. This element, he says, forces either mortal conflict moderated only by exhaustion or equal liberty of conscience and freedom of thought. Political liberalism, and it's a very famous and powerful line, political liberalism begins by taking to heart the absolute depth of that irreconcilable conflict. Characteristic of modernity, post-Reformation period, is that pluralism is, as they say, permanent. That is, disagreement is deep, it is irreconcilable, it is not going to go away. That's the starting point for the liberal society. So for Rawls, the triumph of liberalism can be traced to its recognition of the absolute depth of conflict. Liberal toleration arises from the conviction that disagreement about the highest moral ideals is permanent, it's not something that's going to go away, it's something indeed that we should acknowledge, accommodate through toleration, and celebrate as the predictable outcome of the operation of reason under conditions of freedom. So it was when liberals recognised this, permanence, the permanence of conflict, of disagreement, recognising this, that the tolerant society was born. So that's Rawls' story, that's the conjectural history. And in telling that story, he prays in aid the 17th century philosopher John Locke, of whom we've heard something already, and draws comparisons between his own liberalism and Locke's liberalism. Now, that strikes me as a mistake, and I think it's a mistake that has important consequences for our, for our understanding of religious conflict and religiously motivated violence. So what I want to do now in this next section is to say something about the gap, as I see it, between Locke's liberalism, the liberalism that grew out of conflict in the 16th, 17th century, and the liberalism that we have now, differences between those two, and the significance. Then I'll go on to say something about the significance of those differences. So here's Locke in the 17th century, in this period when Protestantism arises, in this period when your future forever and ever depends on having the right beliefs, when nobody's sure, people are disagreeing, everybody's sure which beliefs are the right ones, they're just in conflict. Rawls appeals to Locke's letter on toleration, and he quotes those sections in which Locke says that the care of men's souls is not given to the magistrate, and that God has given no man authority over another, and that no man can abandon 
his own salvation to the care of another. Rawls takes all those statements by Locke as a support for his own distinction, Rawls' own distinction, between the political and the, re- and the religious. And in a way, they are. And what Locke says is, we must have toleration rather than persecution because it is because the church is a voluntary society because God has given no man authority over another in this area. So the state backs off. The state must back off of all of this. Not say anything about religion. Not dictate what you should believe. But just, just keep off. But in praying Locke in aid, Rawls doesn't mention the fact that Locke doesn't simply assert but argues for the separation of politics and religion. Nor does he note that the argument that Locke provides is a very distinctively religious one. It appeals to the religious convictions of his audience and it appeals to them as Christian believers. So the letter concerning toleration is remarkable in that it offers religious reasons for the institution of a secular state. Why should the magistrate not have not dabble in religious matters? Because God said so, that's why. So it's a religious story for a secular state. It's a very strange, unusual, distinctive argument. So what are the reasons that, that Locke gives, specifically, for a secular state? Well, Locke's argument is that the state should be secular because God said so. It's God's will that the state should be secular. <clears throat> and he writes, the care of souls is not committed to the civil magistrate. It is not to any more than to, to other men, to the magistrate, the politician, the governor. It is not committed unto him, I say, by God because it appears not that God has given any authority to one man over another as to compel anyone to his own religion. So for Locke, the state should be secular because God said so. His argument is addressed to Christian magistrates, and it reminds them that insofar as they are Christian, they shouldn't use the coercive power of the state to enforce religious belief. I mean, in Locke's hand, it's absolutely standard that the magistrate interferes in religious matters. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a magistrate, if you're a politician, you'd be negligent not to send people on the right path, the right the path for heaven. That would be just that would just be criminally negligent. So it's not simply your right, it's your positive duty to, to, to turn people's faces and heads and minds to the right and to the left. <coughs> And Locke's argument is an argument which addresses each individual religious believer and says, no, no, wait, wait. Don't you see that insofar as you're a Christian believer, this is not what you should do. It's the very fact that you believe in the Christian God that determines, dictates that. You should be tolerant, you should not interfere in matters religious. What's more, it's not just Locke's insistence on the separation of church and state that's worthy of attention, but the precise nature of that separation. In a, a book called Locke's Politics and Moral Consensus, Greg Foster is at pains to emphasise that the distinction between church and state that's championed by Locke is very different from the distinction made by modern liberals. He writes, the overlap that Locke seeks to build and build upon is at the level of moral theory. When modern liberal theorists ground their theories on an appeal to pre-existing consensus on liberal principles, They rule out any attempt to provide moral justification of those principles. Liberalism of consensus, moral consensus by contrast, lays the foundations of politics in a shared moral philosophy. So in short, liberals like Rawls, modern political liberals like Rawls, think that there's no possibility of getting any moral agreement 
And so the liberal state just stands apart from moral and religious matters. But Locke thinks there can be agreement, moral agreement. And it's the fact, that the, it's the fact of moral agreement that grounds the secular state for him. So again, crudely, Locke thinks we can get moral agreement insofar as we're Christian. That moral agreement is, is moral agreement that dictates a secular state. We've got a secular state because it's morally right. Rawls thinks that we've got a secular state because we can't agree on anything much. Theories of justice, but that's all. So these are two very different ways in which the liberal state can be political. Locke's state is political because God said so. But Rawls' state is political because there's no possibility of religious agreement or moral agreement. And without that, we just appeal to the principles implicit in the public culture of a democratic society. Now, those differences, that difference between, lots of differences follow from it, between Locke and Rawls, seem to me to be very deeply problematic for the enterprise that's modern political liberalism and for liberalism's ability to respond to the persistence of conflict between people with different comprehensive conceptions of the good. It's partly because modern liberalism assumes what needs to be shown, namely that the political and the religion, religious should be kept separate. Partly because it denies that any moral conception can deliver justice as fairness. And partly because it's got no story to tell people about why they should give priority to the political when it conflicts with their own comprehensive conceptions of the good. And in all the, for what it's worth, in all those ways, I think that modern liberalism is were inferior to Locke's liberalism, but I let that rest. Here comes the Rawlsian bit, I'm afraid. I'll, I'll, you know, here it is. Um, okay, here, here it is. I, all I'm indicating so far, and then I'll launch into the Rawlsian bit, and then I'll tell you when it's over. It, it's not long. What I'm saying so far is, is that lots of modern liberals say, we must have the separation of church and state. Why must we have the separation of church and state? Or why must politics keep out of, of religious matters? Oh, well, here's Locke. Locke's, Locke's the man who tells us all of this. But the, reasons that Locke, the reason Locke, Locke gives us for doing this is not the reason that it is, it is deployed now. Perhaps it should be. I'll come to that in a minute. But it's not the same reason, therefore it's not the same liberalism. It's not the same justification of the secular character of the state that's being employed. But what then? That, so that's one thought, the separation of politics and religion. But what about the permanence of pluralism? Remember at the very beginning I said, look, what Rawls tells us is that modern liberalism begins with the thought that, begins by taking seriously the absolute depth of conflict. So it looks out and says, you're all different. You've all got conflict and reason to take very seriously the extent and depth of that conflict. How, how does modern liberalism fare there? Okay, here it comes. In a book called The Morals of Modernity, Charles Lamour asks what's distinctive about modern liberalism. Following Rawls, he urges that liberalism is characterised by its commitment to the permanence of pluralism. But he takes issue with Rawls' use of the word pluralism, and he notes that what Rawls really means when he speaks of pluralism is, in fact, reasonable disagreement. Pluralism, Lamour says, is a doctrine about the sources of value. It claims that they're many and not one, and as such it stands in opposition to monism, to theism, or to a search for platonic unity. What's more, pluralism is a very controversial doctrine. 
and Lamore says it's a distinctively modern one. It belongs to a disenchanted vision of the world which sees itself as having abandoned the comfort of finding in the harmony of the cosmos or God's ordering of the world one ultimate source of value. And there, of course, is the rub. Insofar as pluralism holds that the sources of value are many and not one, and rejects providential ordering of the universe, it's denied by many people and conspicuously by those of a religious temperament who think that there's one source of value and that one source of value is God. Because religious faith remains part of the modern world, reasonable disagreement is to be expected and indeed forms the starting point of political liberalism. It, as the more writes, it responds to the idea of, of a disenchanted world, not by affirming it, but by recognising that like other deep conceptions of value, this disenchantment is an idea about which reasonable people are likely to disagree as they do. So pluralism proper, pluralism about the sources of value, is denied by many, many religious believers. And it's because the world contains both pluralists and monists that disagreement can be expected. It's that kind of disagreement, disagreement about the big questions of metaphysics, that liberalism takes as its starting point. But political liberalism tries to say nothing about disagreement of that sort. It tries to take no side in disputes about the source or sources of value, but just to note that such disputes are predictable and to remain silent or abstinent about them. Political liberalism is political, not metaphysical. So look, I'll recast it, and then I won't bore you any longer with, with that. I'll, I'll, I'll leave the, the rest of that, that bit and give you, give you the example, which I hope will cast, cast light on things. The story is something like this. People disagree about things. But, but there are various ways in which we might disagree. We might disagree about the morality of abortion. We might disagree about trolley problems, anything, anything just for anything you like. The crucial question is, is it the case that there is an answer to our, our quarrel? Is there a right answer, but we just haven't got to it yet? Or is it the case that maybe there's no right answer? Maybe there are lots of things which can't be reconciled. And then there's a disagreement at that second level. The disagreement now is not about the right way to live. The disagreement is about whether there are lots of, whether there is an answer or whether there's no answer at all. Yeah? That's the debate about pluralism. I'm going to, because it's late and time is passing, I'm going to go on quite quickly to the example, because I think the example shows what I want to say. What I'm suggesting here is that modern liberals, political philosophers, are very, very resistant. This is my starting point, very resistant to the idea that when people engage, when terrorists say this violence is religiously motivated, that's what they mean. And they tend rather, good in paper, these other people, they tend to translate that religious story, that religious claim, into a political claim to say, no, really, this is strategic or pragmatic or expedient or political. There's a political game. It's not really religious. It's not clear to me why they do that. And so I begin this investigation. The investigation, it seems to me, shows that although liberalism began in the days of Locke with 
con confronting serious, serious problems about religious discord and strife. In a way, it's become a victim of its own success. It was so successful at taming religious conflict and religious discord as to forget that that religious discord runs extremely deep and to forget that the separation of church and state, politics and religion, put it that way, is something which cannot simply be stated but has to be argued for. And so to put it crudely, in Raw's political liberalism, in Goodin's political liberalism, or in modern liberalism, we sit, and, and I think today and yesterday in the discussion, there is a simple assumption very often that we know that this is politics and that's religion. So, so whatever we think about politics and religion, we know we're, we're agreed about what politics is and we're agreed about what religion is, what the spheres are. And that's a mistake. So my main claim is that we, that we get into trouble in our understanding of terrorism, religiously motivated acts of violence, insofar as we don't any longer understand the absolute depth of disagreement and we don't understand what, what constitutes we don't understand that the scope of religion is different for different people. Here's the example. Go to the end. Here's the example. In a lecture given in York many years ago, the historian, Christopher Hill, a Marxist historian, told, discusses the case of John Bunyan. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, um, wrote the Pilgrim's Pro Progress in Bedfordshire Jail. He was there, put there for 12 years, and he was put there for 12 years for preaching without a license. Um, God went to John Bunyan and said, John Bunyan, I have special work for you to do. The work that you must do is to act as a preacher. Bunyan, non-accidentally, didn't have a license to preach, and they weren't about to give him a license to preach. So in preaching, he committed a criminal offence and was imprisoned for that, and when he refused to desist from preaching, um, they took him back in again. He spent in total 12 years in, in jail, during which time he wrote, amongst other things, The Pilgrim's Progress. Christopher Hill says this, when Bunyan faced the Bedfordshire justices in 1661, he thought that he was refusing to give up his God-given vocation of preaching. They thought he was a dangerous agitator who was stirring up class hostility in the very delicate situation of post-restoration England, just recovering from a revolution in which the revolutionaries had spoken on behalf of the poor, as Bunyan did. The issues are not clear-cut, not pure, for two quite different politico-religious systems of value were in conflict. The Bedfordshire gentry believed it to be their duty to prevent disorder and in particular to prevent any revival of the revolutionary activities of the 40s and 50s. Bunyan's motives, here's the story, Bunyan's motives were, motives were religious, not political, not revolutionary. Nonetheless, they led him to take actions which the Bedfordshire justices could not but regard as seditious. What Bunyan did, Bunyan's favourite text was it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a biblical text. It's religion. It's not got anything to do with politics. It's not subversive. In post-restoration England, 
where you know, kings have been beheaded and reinstated, so not the heads, the kings, <laughs> reinstated. It, it's preposterous. It, well, it is in some straightforward sense incredible to claim that this is not a political statement. And that's why Christopher Hill says, it's a very carefully phrased sentence, the Bedfordshire Justice could not but regard his actions and his statements as seditious. And it seems to me the important point that's being made here, I think it's a tremendously important point, is that if you ask the question, was this religious or was it political, there isn't a clear answer to that question. There is not a clear and uncontroversial answer. When Christopher Hill gives the studio, I repeat myself, he thought, Bunyan thought, he thought he was doing God's will. God came to him and said, John Bunyan, I have special work for you. The Bedfordshire justices can't be expected to see it that way. They see this as political activity of an, of an intolerable kind, and they're banging up for it. And what that shows, it seems to me, is that we now take very lightly the distinction between the political and the religious. But it's exactly that distinction that's contested in this period, and which remains... Um, well, I think, it's, I think the price is eternal vigilance, that you just have to keep watching and watching and watching. And you have to do what modern liberalism doesn't do, and that is to make an argument for it for the line between the religious and the political coming in a particular place, rather than for the distinction between the political and the religious being clear and uncontroversial. So, soon I finish. Hill's analysis of the case rests heavily on the possibility that there can be more than one way of construing the scope of the political and its relationship to the religious. That is precisely what Locke sought to overcome by offering, as he saw it, an argument to the religious for a specific understanding of the scope and significance of the political. He says to the religious, for you, this is, this is why it has to be this way. But modern liberalism has no such argument to offer. It simply assumes that we know what counts as political and that we know that the political has priority. But that's the problem in a pluralist world, and it can't therefore be the solution. So my conclusion is that modern liberalism rests on twin assumptions. First, the scope of the political is uncontroversial. Second, the political takes priority over the religious. Both assumptions lead ineluctably to the conclusion that those who commit religiously motivated acts of violence are driven, or if not mad, driven by the pursuit of political ends. But that conclusion does nothing to avert religious violence and may do quite a lot to exacerbate it. If we wish to secure religious tolerance in the modern world, we must begin not by reducing religious conviction to political conviction, but rather by recognising the status of religious belief as a thing in itself, distinct from and sometimes in conflict with politics. We must begin by recalling with the late John Pamenat that in 17th, 16th and 17th century Europe, liberty of conscience was born not of indifference, not of scepticism, not of open-mindedness, but of faith. Paradoxically, perhaps, the lesson of Locke's letter is that it was the fanatic who gave us toleration in 17th century Europe, and it is perhaps the fanatic who may provide it again at the dawn of the 21st. Thank you very much. Okay, so Sue's paper is about the problem of religiously motivated violence. How should we conceive of such violence, and in particular, what should be our strategy for coping with it? And Sue discusses three possible strategies. 
So the first is simply to deny that religiously motivated violence may ever be in good faith, and hence there is a problem of religiously motivated violence as such. On this view, appealing to religion to justify violence is just a smokescreen behind which more primitive, straightforward motives, such as the desire for power and domination, prevail. Sue's not attracted by this first strategy. She wants, quite rightly I think, um, at least to take seriously the possibility that members of some religious traditions may genuinely take themselves to be subject to weighty moral obligations to commit acts of violence and to oppose and undermine liberal democratic states such as our own. The second strategy is based on the modern liberal take on religion of the kind very familiar from the work of John Rawls. So this holds that religiously motivated violence is incompatible with a concern for justice, properly speaking. <laughs> Roughly, justice requires being able to justify ourselves to others in terms that everyone could reasonably accept, and religion-based reasons, especially religion-based reasons to commit acts of violence, are ones that may only resonate with practitioners. Once again, Sue isn't convinced that the modern liberal strategy says enough. Part of the problem, as she notes, is that it can sound like little more than table thumping. As she puts it, modern political liberals do not argue for but simply assert a distinction between politics and religion. So this brings us to the third possibility, the one that Sue is most impressed by, the one given by John Locke. So what John Locke offers is a kind of moral justification for keeping religion out of politics and a fortiori an argument against religiously motivated forms of political violence. Unlike modern liberals such as Rawls, who think that we must eschew appeals to fundamental moral theory, Locke's argument is that God has commanded us to keep religion out of politics and that we are morally obligated to obey God's commands. What's interesting about this argument is it provides an unequivocal moral indictment of religiously motivated violence that is also addressed to the religious fanatic and not just the secular liberal. Um, so before commenting directly about Sue's paper, let me just say I was struck by one omission from her list of uh, strategies, the idea that we should try to find a prudential justification for keeping religion out of politics. And my guess is that this kind of prudential thinking certainly played an important role in achieving more secular societies in the 17th century. Um, it is, of course, quite true that these prudential arguments get kind of complicated where the divine is at issue, since we have to grapple with ideas of infinite good and bad. But I think that this is probably not an insurmountable obstacle. Anyway, um, I really just want to focus on just making a couple of observations about Sue's favourite strategy, which is this third Lockean strategy. So one thing I didn't prepare, I was, I was just actually struck when she was um, when she was talking that actually this is just a point about the interpretation of Locke, which which you're okay. so this is a dangerous thing for me to no, question you on, but I'm going to I'm going to do it anyway. So I was sort of actually struck by the fact that the passages that you quoted from um, Locke didn't seem to me to be quite lending support to, to, you know, to your interpretation. So your interpretation was that Locke has commanded us to keep God. religion out of politics. But in fact, the passage that you quoted, it, 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 it's rather uh, saying that God has not commanded um, the civil magistrate um, to use authority over us. So in fact, it's, it's the absence of a command rather than the presence of a command. And I actually think that might be that might be potentially significant. Possibly there are other, um, there are other passages um, in Locke that, um, that, that lend credence to your interpretation. But the bits that you actually mentioned, I didn't actually think were, were sufficient. But anyway, um, I'm just going to assume now that, uh, that, that Sue's interpretation of Locke is, is right. Um, and just say a couple of things about um, this Lockean strategy. So a good place to begin is by noting that there are in fact, I think, two different things going on in the Lockean strategy. So first, 
there is a thought that we must find a moral and not just a political justification for the priority of politics over religion. Second is the attempt to find a justification that is acceptable to the religious fanatic. And it seems to me at the very least to be worth emphasising that these two ideas are conceptually distinct. So we might agree with Locke and Sue in holding that rules of the modern liberals are just completely wrong, wrong-headed, to suppose that we can set aside issues of fundamental moral theory altogether in order to establish the priority of the political over the religious, without, however, thinking that we must adduce considerations acceptable by the likes of the religious fanatic. And indeed, uh, when I was thinking about it, I couldn't help thinking that not only are these two ideas in Locke conceptually distinct, but they actually make for slightly uneasy bedfellows. A concern with moral justification requires directing our attention to normatively salient properties of the thing we're trying to justify, the likely effects on people's well-being, the rights that would be violated, and so on. By contrast, a concern to be able to justify ourselves to someone who we regard to be seriously misguided, such as a religious fanatic, seems to be a kind of strategic enterprise in which we're concerned less with the moral truth and more with trying to placate and lure into submission an unstable and potentially dangerous opponent. And in this context, it seems to me to be worth asking whether we should be concerned to find a justification that is acceptable to the religious fanatic at all. Um, there are a number of reasons to think that perhaps the answer is no. So we might worry that there's something disingenuous about it or that we're thereby kowtowing to the fanatic, compromising our integrity, etc., etc. Or we might simply worry that it's not going to be possible to present a justification that we both take to be a good moral justification and that will be acceptable by the lights of a religious fanatic. Now, actually, I'm not sure that Sue would disagree with any of this. It might be that what she has in mind is not that we, not that we should try to convince the religious fanatic, but rather that we should hope that the religious fanatics will come to convince themselves that something like the Lockean argument is true, that God, their God, has commanded them not to engage in religious violence. I think this is suggested by the final sentence of Sue's paper where she writes, um, I quote, paradoxically, perhaps the lesson of Locke's letter is that it was the fanatic who gave us toleration in the 17th century and it is the fanatic who may provide it at the dawn of the 21st. So what's nice about this suggestion is that it means that we don't need to engage in a disingenuous, morally disreputable, quite possibly fruitless attempt at justification at all. We can leave it up to the religious fanatics. Of course, it also has about it a slightly worrying element of pious hope that things will turn out that way. But maybe a little bit of pious hope is in bad thing. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, do, do you want to respond quickly to Nixon? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. I accept absolutely that the quotations are perhaps not the, 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 the best, best ones. And what I had in mind is that it is the case that Locke's, Locke does say, I, I don't think I've chosen the right ones, and, and that's, it's a fair comp there. Um, Locke's line of thinking is, your soul is the most important thing. Do you imagine that God would have left the care of that to someone else, the politician? And he, in saying that, he's in a sense speaking to the politician, saying, you know, why do you imagine that you have the right to interfere in what is the most important thing in somebody else's life? But I, you know, I absolutely accept that, that the quotations are not really the, the, the best ones, but I think there are better ones there, and I think the case can be made out at greater length. I, I want to make one. I, I want to make one objection to to, to to what you said, Nick, which may or may not be significant. And that is, you you repeatedly said, well, this is a question about how we persuade the fanatic. I don't think it is. It is a question about how we persuade the fanatic. I think it's a question of strategy. There are two strategies. One in political liberalism, one in Locke's liberalism. 
The strategy in Locke's liberalism is to persuade the, not the fanatic, but the religious believer, the magistrate, from within. It's to say, look, let's take what you believe now and see what comes from that. Let's take your deepest beliefs and kind of pull on them, pull on them, pull on them. And don't you see that there are things that follow for politics from those inner beliefs? I, I, mean, I don't teach you to suck eggs. Political liberals say exactly the opposite. The one place we're not going to go is into your deepest beliefs. So it's not really a matter of fanaticism. I suppose my thought is, to, and it maybe picks up something that to, Tony gestured towards at the end of his talk, um, to the extent that we don't fully understand the position of the religious believer in these contexts, we maybe make him into a fanatic, or you know, encourage the stakes to become higher and higher and higher. So I wasn't, I'm not wanting to, to address the fanatic in the first place, but rather the, the magistrate. And I'm drawing attention to two different strategies, and I'm saying, well, it may be if we return to Locke's strategy, we do rather better. Okay. So I thought that the reason why I thought you were interested in the fanatic is it's presumably one has to be somewhat fanatical to contemplate acts of religiously motivated violence. And I was thinking, I mean, the nice thing about the Lockean argument, I mean, in, in principle, it should apply to the fanatic. I mean, if the fanatic kind of buys something like yes. Locke's argument, yeah. I mean, they could be as fanatical as yeah, you like. Okay, okay fair uh, so, Yeah, no, that's, that's a fair point. So it's it was, just in the beginning, for Locke, it's an argument sure, but to, I, the, but to I, the magistrate. But I, fair but I understood you to be sort of yeah. appropriating that Lockean strategy and saying yeah. that it may have... Yeah,